Welcome to Mariella Meets. I'm Mariella Frostrup, and each week I'll be bringing you a selection of the best interviews from our favorite guests. Movers and shakers from the worlds of art and entertainment, politics, business, music, and wider society. To discuss everything from their latest endeavors to career highlights and early beginnings. Intimate, in-depth talk with pioneering talents and fascinating folk discussing the stuff that matters to them and how they scaled the slippery slopes of success. Mark Strong is one of our hardest working and most prolific actors whose achievements range across the small screen, silver screen and indeed stage with over 60 film credits alone to his name. I'd run out of breath if I were to run through them all but from Prince Septimus in Stardust to Justin Pido in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy to Lord Henley Blackwood in Sherlock Holmes, he's rarely out of our view. His latest project, Temple, which is returning for a second season, sees Mark play Daniel Milton, a brilliant surgeon who hides his talent terminally ill wife deep in the bowels of Temple Station to secretly research a cure. Motivated by frustration towards the medical establishment and a desperate fear for his wife, he finds himself drawn relentlessly further into a criminal underworld. And Mark Strong joins me now, I'm delighted to say. Mark, welcome to the programme. Season one saw your character, Daniel, just about keep things uh, together as he looked after his wife in this illicit underground clinic but um season two really seems to have <laughs> cranked up the pressure on him i have to say i was consumed with angst for his predicament uh, watching the first episode tell me a little bit more about what we can expect from this series the joy of doing season two was the fact that we could take it wherever we wanted because um season one we had the template of the uh, of the original norwegian series which was um uh, fascinating and different and unusual and quirky, and that was uh, what we saw in it. We didn't we didn't copy it. We adapted the first season, so it was pretty much our own work based on the characters we inherited. But the second season, what's great about it is it is really all our own work. We put a writers' room together, and we decided that we were going to take Daniel, who ends up spinning plates for the whole of the first season, trying to kind of accommodate what's happening to his wife and uh, how he's going to cope. Uh, and then in the second season, we, we ramped everything up to 11, basically. We just throw everything at him. And this supposedly content man with his with his uh, happy family and, and uh, his middle class life and his, his uh, you know, his good job suddenly has to cope with crossing the moral and ethical Rubicon because he gets up to no good. And it's really watching a guy trying to deal with that. You mentioned um, the original Norwegian series, which I think you and your partner who's uh, produced it, Lisa uh, Marshall, you mentioned the, the, the Norwegian series that, that it was originally based on. And I think you two sort of were sitting watching it and thought, this is, this is brilliant, we have to do it. What was it that appealed to you about, about the original? That it was so unique. <clears throat> We'd never seen anything set underground like that, let alone the concept of a man who's trying to save his dying wife by doing illegal surgery in order to um, take care of her. And the whole underground element was really interesting. So we were looking for something that was unusual because obviously she'd be making her programs, I'd been doing mine, and then we decided that we wanted to work together and we just thought it would fit perfectly. You, you mentioned, again, the underground element, and I think Transport for London allowed you to shoot in, in, in the disused Aldrich tube station, which, which doubles for your station, Temple. Um, what was that experience like? How did you manage to persuade them for a start? But secondly, it really does lend a, a, an even sort of a greater darkness to, to the scenario. 
it was very difficult. It's not easy to film underground. As you can imagine, there are an incredible number of protocols and uh, very, very stringent safety regulations in place for anybody going underground. And obviously, there is a department that deals with anybody who wants to poke around down there. So we had to get their permission and make sure they were on site all the time and be very specific about what it was we wanted to do. Um, but ultimately, uh, we were able to get down there. Obviously, it was compounded by the fact that this time around, there, were, um, there was the COVID issue, which meant that most of uh, the people weren't there available there to take us down there and do it all with us. But luckily, we built an incredible set from the first season that we resurrected in a, in a brewery in Hammersmith and used that for most of the tunnel sequences and built a new section, a sort of drainage tunnel section to it. Um, and we didn't actually have to go down underground in the second one, because in the first one, I remember the crew not thanking us for the fact that it was disused, the old witch, um, and there were no lifts. So you had to oh, carry no. <laughs> everything up and down, including the incredibly heavy dolly. And you know how heavy those things are, you know, that the camera sits on. Um, but yeah, you, you, you can, uh, we were able to use the tunnels, but uh, you, you, there are, you have to get permission. A lot, there's a lot of levels to go through before you can get permission. He's a complex character, Daniel, and I think that this premise uh, itself raises a lot of, of, of kind of moral questions about how far you'd go for your family, um, you know, what you'd be prepared to do, how easy it is to slip from what seems like a perfect life into a, a nightmarish life. I, I presume those were some of the um, elements that, that attracted you to the project in the first place. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> the stuff of drama for me is about complication it's about multi-layered characters and uh the idea of a guy who supposedly has it all and is very comfortable in his life suddenly having to deal with things that he's never encountered before uh was really interesting and the whole idea that we trust our surgeons and our doctors and our medical people um but the fact that he has to deal with issues that he's never come across and to see him making decisions that we're not sure whether they're the right ones or not is kind of fascinating and that was the that was the element that I was interested in. You're not sure whether to like him or loathe him. You're not sure whether the choices he making are, he's making are right or wrong. But at all points, you understand why he's making those choices. And the funny thing is, a surgeon I spoke to said, ultimately, that's kind of what practical surgery is about. I mean, you can go into somebody in order to deal with whatever, whatever their problem might be, but you have no idea what you're going to encounter when you open them up. And essentially what you have to do is you just deal with each problem as you get to it. So you cross every bridge as you come to it. If you discover there's something you weren't expecting inside the person you're operating on, you deal with that, you move on. And in a way, that's what I wanted to create for Daniel in his everyday life. I understand that you had to go and, and witness a, a, an operation as part of your uh, deep research uh, for the role. I wondered, you know, first of all, it's a pretty gruesome thing to see. There are some pretty gruesome scenes of surgery in, in, in the first episode even. But also, how much that gives you a sense of, I don't know, our vulnerability as human beings when you've seen inside someone uh, in the way that you do witnessing an operation. I think you witnessed a, a lung being operated on. Yeah, the practicality of it is fascinating. I mean, because you assume there is some holy event taking place, but actually the body is really just a system of straps and pulleys with organs and a heart pumping blood around it in tubes. And when you see that, it's quite humbling. And the operation that I saw, I had no idea how I was going to react to it. I thought it might faint or something awful would happen. 
And actually, it was really absorbing. And the idea really was the guy that he was operating on had a piece of his lung that was infected and he had to get it out. And he had special scissors that cauterized when he cut. Um, the, the watching him sew as well was a real revelation. That's an incredibly difficult thing. Um, but it was essentially a sort of practical event. And worryingly, the um, prosthetics people made incredibly accurate reconstructions of a body the organs they were all the right weight the right size the amount of blood in the body that that the prosthetic body i was operating on was correct so to all intents and purposes and confirmed by the surgeon who was on set he said this is pretty much what it's like and and now i have this terrible notion that should i be on an airplane and anybody comes forward and needs surgery <laughs> I might think that I might be able to do it. <laughs> Honestly, don't get too delusional. That's a bit of a worry. Um, as I mentioned in the introduction, you've had this incredibly prolific career as an actor and worked in every single sort of medium. Is creating a part for yourself partly um, something that you've you've moved toward because there is a sense that you kind of play one part and then the next 10 parts you get offered all tend to be the same, that people have a bit of a, a lack of imagination when it comes to casting. Oh, yeah, he plays bad guys or she plays sexy women or, you know, whatever uh, the thing is, that actually generating your own work is is, is, is one way of breaking out of that. Yeah. Have you ever tried in your mind to think about who might be suitable for a book you're reading or, or, you know, something that you've heard about? You tend to go back to the people that you've seen who've just done something similar. It's it's human nature. Good casting directors, obviously, will give you opportunities to do things that you're not and to, to stretch you. And uh, But essentially, people, you're right, do come to you for a particular thing that they perceive that you're good at. So having the opportunity to do something else is a real it's it's incredibly valuable. I feel very lucky to have been able to do that and to get to executive produce something or produce it and work on it and be in the uh, at the beginning uh, developing the character and the dialogue and all of that was um, was really satisfying. When you play so many different parts, how do you go about the process of choosing what you want to do and what you don't? I mean, I know that's a slightly empty question because ultimately everyone has to pay their mortgage and, and so yeah. on. But, but you know, with the luxury of choice, what appeals to you about a, a character? What, what draws you to want to play someone? Well, there, there's a kind of checklist, I suppose, a, a, a mental checklist that you have, which include things like character. Do you do you want to play that character? Can you bring something to that character? Can you truthfully represent that character? Um, how, what's the director like? Because obviously, ultimately, certainly in film, everything that you shoot will go into a room and the director will choose what bits get used. You know, where is it filming and for how long? If, if you've got a family, those are those are things that you have to think about and do you want to go away for a long period of time or not? So there's a there's a kind of mental checklist. But I suppose ultimately it's about the character, the project and the director. If you're excited to work with somebody on something, then it doesn't really matter what you know how much you're doing. Or For example, I've just been in Berlin shooting a film with uh, Kate Blanchett, directed by Todd Field. It's a film, I don't know, I'm not sure how much I'm allowed to say, but it's a, it's a, it deals with the world of classical music. And I really like Kate. I think she's a great actress. And I really love Todd Field as a director. And it was just a few weeks filming and I only have a, a quite a small part in it. But I really wanted to do it to go and work with those people. So I think now I just, I just, yeah, want to do things I feel that I can bring something to and, and work with the best people. 
Listeners might uh, recognise uh, your voice from something completely different. You mentioned the COVID uh, during filming Temple. Uh, last year, you, you narrated um, public information films for the for the government, which outlined how the British public should approach daily life during the COVID-19 pandemic. How did it feel having that sort of onerously authoritarian position, as it were? And did it, did it make did it impact the pandemic on you more, or was it you know? Just a voiceover job. <laughs> well, what was ironic was that we were in lockdown. I couldn't do it in a studio. So I had to sort of invent a studio at home. And in order to soundproof the room, I had to get very very um, creative with uh, duvets. So I would run into my kids' rooms and grab their duvets and shove them up against the doors and windows so that I could create a soundproof room. So even though the message might have sounded very erudite and very authoritarian, the place where it was being recorded was... Uh, uh, a bit uh, ramshackle and I, I think people could have seen that place they would have had a giggle but it was interesting that I was uh, yeah I mean I was happy to help to be honest with you I mean there was um, something very serious going on and I'm I suppose they, that you know I have a voice that could, that can you know uh, encourage people to do something without uh, terrifying them that was the that was the remit does it work with your sons uh, I wish it did <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they don't. Uh, they don't listen to a word I say. So, no, unfortunately, not. But uh, I keep. Uh, I keep trying. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare insurance plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare insurance plans at uh1.com. Mark, can we talk a little bit about your early days? Because I, I wondered, first of all, what it was that had encouraged you to want to embrace acting as a career. I know you had a, a kind of difficult childhood insofar as, as, as you were institutionalised from an early age as a result of your mum being a single parent and, and having to go away to, to work and things. How much did that make you start playing a character from early on? I've always wondered why I ended up down this path because I don't have any family in the industry and I didn't know anybody who was an actor and everybody that I ever saw on stage, my mother used to take me to stage productions when I was very young. And uh, uh, obviously I used to watch the movies and those people lived in a completely different world to me. I didn't realize that they were in the same world as me. So I, I didn't have any kind of desire to do it when I was younger. And I just think the day that I realized I found it really interesting and got the bug I realised it was because I, I just enjoyed putting myself in someone else's shoes. And I think that, that was born of the fact that I didn't have any blueprint growing up in terms of a family structure because, you know, my dad wasn't around. I don't have any siblings. There was no one telling me what I should do or how I should be. I, I literally had to kind of look at the world. I felt a little bit of an outsider, but I was very comfortable looking at the world and deciding which bits of it I liked and which bits I didn't and who I liked and who I didn't and how one should behave and... I think that analysis as a, as a young kid growing up just lent itself really easily to the concept of pretending to be other people, if you like, you know, putting yourself in other people's shoes and trying to imagine how they would react in any given situation, which is essentially what kind of acting is. And I've always tried to, to, 
vary the characters as well as much as possible. I mean, the most difficult thing is to play someone close to myself, which Daniel, funnily enough, in in Temple is. He's he's much closer to the world that I know than than I don't know the New York mafia boss I played in Kickass. Or um, so I've always kind of looked for varied characters, and I think I get a kick out of out of just you know working out who they are and why. I know that um, your dad was a sort of absent figure pretty much through your childhood, through your life. And you said an incredibly poignant thing in a in an interview in the past where, where you said that the two of you had one thing in common, which was that you clearly didn't have a strong need to have the other in your life. And, and, and that's a really painful thing for a child to feel. I mean, you know, to feel an adult's abandoned them like that. How do you think that that's, impacted on on how you've dealt with life i i never felt abandoned that's the thing i think if you don't grow up with the presence of one or the other of your parents from a very young age you don't miss anything i imagine it must be much more difficult if you lose them when you're older and you've developed a relationship with them so i never felt like i was missing out and actually it it made the bond with my mother stronger you know she was a single mother bringing me up uh, on her own so it never really it never I, I never felt any loss in fact the opposite if, if I'm honest I felt liberated I, I felt like I could I could choose whatever path I wanted I could hang out with whoever I wanted I had no no authoritarian figure or, or as I as I said sibling sort of rivalry dictating how I should behave or what I should choose to be in life and um, a proper family structure, I think, is which is what I have now, and hopefully my boys are benefiting from it, is obviously the desirable thing. But it didn't really, it didn't really cause me many problems at all, to be honest with you. And I think that, as I said at the beginning, it's because my my father wasn't around from such a very young age, and I only surmise that he, you know, presumably he knows where I am, and uh, uh, but he's happy in his life. And because it happened such a long time ago, we've we've both led completely separate lives. It might be quite odd now to try and connect it's interesting though isn't it how much if you've had a a childhood with its challenges like that how much you want to create normality you know a a, a really sort of settled home life yourself how 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 that sort of cements in you I know that was certainly the case with me so one's clearly making a a decision going that I I want to do better than that or I want to do differently you know I, I had no safety net you know if I'm honest that's kind of where the drive came from. It wasn't that I felt I had to do better or I had to succeed in any way that was better than anyone around me or anybody who'd left the family home or anything. It was just that there was no safety net. So I I had no choice but to keep moving forward and keep working out how I was going to survive. And um, there was also a massive naivety because I remember I studied law first, which everybody was very uh, happy with me doing because it's such a, it's it's Proper supposedly job. yeah it's a safe bet yeah so when I then made that decision to leave law and do acting I didn't have a chorus of people going you're crazy no you can't what are you thinking or giving me terrible facts that would persuade me not to go down that path I literally just made that decision myself and was able to choose it because there was nobody telling me anything else you were six or eight when when you went your mum because she went back to to live in Germany I think uh, sent you to the 
horrendously named Asylum for Fatherless Children. <laughs> yeah. I, I love that, that you, you look at the positive impact of, of the things that, that you lived through in, in childhood. Do you remember how it felt then? Do you remember if it changed you as a person from, you know, you talked about your close connection to your mum. It must have felt desperately sad to have that separation occur at, at, at that vulnerable age. Yeah, I, I do remember that the day that I was taken to the school, you know, we drove down there. It was in uh, it was in Surrey. It used to be an orphanage, I think, in the 1800s. And then the Asylum for Fatherless Children was a very Victorian way of describing something that was actually benevolent, which was the, the concept that people from one parent families would have an opportunity to have a decent schooling. And um, that survived into the 70s, uh, or late 60s, 70s, when I went there. Um I was remembering a photograph that my mother still has of me in the little uniform and her sort of giving me a kiss on the cheek. And I remember that was the day that she drove me down there and then had to leave and uh, go back to London. Uh, it was down in uh, in Surrey. And that's quite an emotional little picture. And I, I look quite vulnerable. So I must have been, I'm sure I was. But in those days, it was, you know, you just you kind of got on with it. And I have to say, I was also really excited about the potential of the place because it was just full of, of kids my age and not having had kids to play with or brothers and sisters. I was I was kind of up for it. And I don't remember it, even though it sounds horrendously Dickensian, being that at all. In fact, I remember it being the opposite. I think I had a great time and it really helped me learn you know, how to how to knock about with other kids. And uh, yeah, I, it was a very positive experience. And also, I imagine, like, understanding the sort of gamut, the full gamut of human emotions is is a, an essential toolkit as an actor. Well, yeah. I mean, when you're there with a huge group of people, all of whom have their own, uh, you know, personal wishes and desires. You know, I was in a dorm of like 20 kids and each of those kids have their own independent sort of... Uh, needs and wants you learn how to observe them and you learn how to accommodate them and you 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 find a little bit out about people when you're thrown together like that so i'm sure in some self psychological analysis uh that that's probably the reason i ended up doing what i'm doing now you've managed to do that thing um that an awful lot of i think people in the public eye particularly actors perhaps uh, aspire to which is to play all these great roles be very successful and therefore be quite famous, but actually not live your life under the sort of scrutiny of the spotlight. How do you stay below the radar and how difficult is it? I mean, it feels to me like it's increasingly difficult in a world that's sort of constantly on, as it were. Yeah, and the advent of social media has uh, changed things enormously. Um, I don't really know. I think I've just always stuck to the notion that for me, what's important is the work. Genuinely, I mean, I, when I originally got the bug, I, I spent 10 years doing stage plays, never really considering that I would get in front of a camera. And then I did some television and then realised that the movies were also there. And I just really drifted between all three different disciplines because uh, I found each of them fascinating in their own way. But at root, all of it was about becoming a better actor, finding the right projects getting the satisfaction of working on something that was really that moves people and that has some kind of import whatever that may be so the creative element was really the most important thing the least important thing was whether it brought me any recognition or fame 
and I've, I've said it before, but the truth is there is nothing, there is nothing to recommend about fame. It's kind of pointless. It doesn't really achieve what you, what people think it's going to achieve. And in fact, most people, once they encounter it, try as hard as they can to, to um, hide from it, to get away from it, you know. Yet it's um, ironic that, that, you know, so many kids grow up now thinking that it is the ultimate ambition. Yeah, it's worrying. You know, it's, it's scary. And I suppose everybody, like Moths to Flames, they have to sort of experience it for themselves. But um, I've been lucky in that I realised very early on that that wasn't what I was interested in. So I've avoided the kind of project and the kind of life that would put me, obviously, in the public eye. All I've done or tried to do is get on with quality work and through that get personal satisfaction and, and, and work with the best people in the industry. Do your boys want to be actors, either of them? I mean, it seems to go one way or the other, doesn't it? That either the, 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 the children of, of thespians either become absolutely committed thespians from an early age or they go in completely opposite, opposite direction and go, I'm not doing that. Yeah. Well, at the moment, they're in the I'm not doing that phase, I think, because they they see it as something that dad does and they don't, quite rightly, they're their own individuals and they don't want to follow in my footsteps. It's so. probably quite embarrassing. Well, maybe. And also, maybe <laughs> there's, yeah, there's probably some kind of pressure too, you know, that you've got to, like I was saying, actually, funny enough, about my family structure, I had no pressure whatsoever. I had nothing to emulate, uh, nothing to compare myself to. And obviously now within this with our family, you know, if the boys wanted to be actors, there would be that added element of, you know, that's what dad does as well. So I hope whatever they choose that they, they're happy doing it. But I don't mind if they want to be actors, fine. I mean, I'm here to give them advice. But if they want to do their own thing, that's cool, too. Just finally, we, we have mentioned, um, you know, that that um, villains are often presented to you as uh, as a part, as a result of you having played some of them so brilliantly. Um, and everyone's been going a bit Bond mad in recent weeks. Uh, you've revealed that that you could have been a Bond film villain, uh, were it not for the fact that you were sabotaged by your old Our Friends in the North co-star, Daniel Craig, Bond himself. Do you want to enlighten us as to what happened? Did he do it on purpose? No, no. He, this was way before he'd been offered Bond, and it's a very prosaic story, basically. We we had remained friends since Our Friends in the North, uh, and we shared a flat, and I had an audition um, to go and... Uh, I can't remember which Bond it was, but... Uh, it was a Pierce one, wasn't it? Pierce Brosnan. It was a Pierce Brosnan one, yes. I can't remember which one exactly, but um, I'd underestimated, I think, that getting in the room and sitting in front of... Barbara Broccoli was in there and Debbie McWilliams, the casting director, and as well as the director and a whole bunch of people all, all there seeing what I was going to bring to uh, my uh, performance. And I'd learned the lines. I'd done it and I felt really confident. I think I, I was overconfident. So Dan Craig and I went out for a drink the night before and um, <clears throat> we had such a great time. It went on too long and uh, I drank a bit too much. So the next morning I was quite badly hung over, but even then I thought I would be fine. But what I'd underestimated is nerves, you know, and the minute you get into a room and everybody's looking at you, it just, uh, I, 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 forgot the lines I couldn't remember what I was doing they offered me the script I said proudly no no I'm going to remember it. I'll do it then I couldn't remember and then in the end we just we just agreed that uh, I wouldn't bother trying to read the scene and I, I never got the job oh does it hurt every time you see Daniel Craig then up there you know no, I, can't, I was going no, to do I was no. going to sing the Bond music but I thought I better not because I really can't sing no on the contrary it made me um 
very aware of the need for preparation. And, you know, it was another lesson along the sort of journey of, of uh, being in this business of how prepared you need to be and how you've got to take everything seriously. And when opportunities present themselves, you need to take them in the best way that you can and, and not uh, be flippant about it. So it taught me an enormous lesson. for listening to Mariella Meets with me, Mariella Frostrup. There'll be more from the podcast next week, so make sure to download the free Times Radio app to never miss an episode. And don't forget, you can catch the live edition of my program every Monday to Thursday, 1 till 4 on Times Radio. Catch you next time.